Listen, okay? I've received all your feedback. Um, thank you for those who submitted. Thanks for all the five out of fives. Well, it turns out all of them are five out of five. Um, that's great. You guys are awesome. Um, really contributing to my mental health in the best way possible. So continue to only praise me um, if possible. I don't need to introduce myself. I don't need to go through the whole rigmarole. It's Appalachia Wellness Center. It's part two time. Um, let's do it. Part two of our series on a specter haunting healthcare. And this part I title the individualization of struggle. Uh, let's see. So I thought for part two of this series on um, healthcare hellscape in America, I thought we could discuss two things in particular, and you may hear them referred to as the social determinants of health, which I think most people have probably heard of at some point. And not only that, the structural determinants of health, which is probably less discussed, but you know, equally, if not more important. And I think the best way of doing that is to use a real-life example to sort of you know, illustrate these economic, physical, and psychological frustrations that go along with confronting our horrifyingly capitalist healthcare system and relate how things that seemingly have nothing to do with healthcare itself actually are major contributors to not just poor health outcomes for patients, but also things like debt, destitution, powerlessness, and exclusion, which, you know, then only compound the total misery we face in social life. And if we understand healthcare in America as just one model for capitalist exploitation, you know, of patients by private insurance and pharmaceutical industry, or of healthcare workers and providers by hospital corporatization in the medical industrial complex, or, you know, what I like to call factory medicine. You know, if we use healthcare as just one model, we can more easily apply this one example that is exploitation in healthcare to other systems of exploitation and control within other sectors of our economy that also fulfill basic human needs, things like food and water, housing, education, childcare, transportation, and when we understand how and why all these basic human needs intersect with and rely on each other, we can more easily see why they cannot and should not be privatized for the pursuit of profit. Because to some degree, a capitalist economy and production model is a zero-sum game. You know, in order for there to be winners, the, the elites, the 1%, there have to be losers, the workers, 99% whatever you want to call it. So given the nature of how capitalists extract profits from the surplus value that work or labor generates, it's inherent to the system itself and can't be reformed. So if we closely examine the deficiencies of a capitalist organization of our economy and society within these need sectors, it's easy to understand why we have so much poverty and inequality, depression and anxiety, loneliness and alienation and all the rest of it. So 
just want to, you know, before we begin here, let me tell you exactly what I mean about the deficiencies of a capitalist organization of the economy and society. In the most capitalist country in the entire world, which also pretends to be the freest and greatest country in the world. Um, shout out America. So when it comes to food access, for example, the United States tied with Japan for 21st out of 125 countries in a ranking of the world's food systems, according to a 2014 study by Oxfam, which is, I don't know, some kind of international advocacy confederation. They used four metrics to determine this, food quality, abundance of food, affordability of food, and eating habits of citizens. One-sixth of children in the U.S. are food insecure. One out of six. That's fucking ridiculous. In 2018, over 14 million households, which equals over 37 million people, lived in food-insecure households, meaning they're forced to skip meals, eat less at meals, buy cheap, non-nutritious food, and or feed their children but not themselves. When it comes to healthcare, as of 2015 at least, we rank 46th in maternal mortality ratio, which is just the number of pregnant person deaths per 100,000 live births. This is a widely used marker of how well a country's healthcare system takes care of its people. The WHO ranked the world's healthcare systems. I mean, granted, this was a 2000 study, but honestly, things have only gotten worse since then, right? We ranked 37th out of 190. Disease burden is higher in the U.S. than in comparable countries. Hospital, admi hospital admissions for preventable diseases like diabetes, congestive heart failure, and asthma is much higher in the U.S. than in comparable countries. And as you know, if you've ever fucking listened to Bernie Sanders speak for more than 30 seconds, the U.S. ranks number one in the world for the most expensive healthcare system, not due to high utilization and all this poverty-shaming bullshit, but merely due to prices. More on this from part one, as you already know. When it comes to education, one of the biggest cross-national tests is the uh, Program for International Student Assessment, this measures you know, reading ability, math, science, literacy, and all these other key skills among 15-year-olds in all these developed and developing countries. The U.S. ranks 24 out of 71 in reading, 38 out of 71 in math, and 24 out of 71 in science. When it comes to housing, the U.S. ranks around 28th in the world in homelessness ratio, which just means the homeless population on any given night. 28th. When it comes to childcare, the United States ranks near the bottom of the OECD countries in the percentage of three to five-year-old children enrolled in early care and education programs. We only rank higher in the percentage of infants and toddlers in formal childcare programs because the United States is the only advanced economy that doesn't guarantee maternity leave for working mothers, and one of only nine OECD countries with no formal leave requirements for fathers. When it comes to transportation, on the last two report cards from the American Society of Civil Engineers, U.S. infrastructure scored a D+. Plus. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Probably not that good. According to the World Economic Forum, the U.S. ranks 11th out of 137 in infrastructure, measured by things like the quality of different infrastructure types, you know, railways, ports, airports. We also rank 60th in road quality. And when it comes to standard of living... 
There are over 38 million people in the United States living in poverty. One in six children, again. Closely related to food access. And per the Inequality Adjusted Human Development Index, we rank 25th out of 151 in standard of living. So clearly we're lagging, to put it nicely, behind the rest of the world in these needs sectors, which is a fucking travesty given how unbelievably wealthy we are as a nation. You know, granted, a lot of this wealth is generated from colonial projects and imperial plunder in the global south, but still. Anyways, let's get into the topic here. Borrowing a bit from uh, Tim Faust, whose excellent book, Health Justice Now, I highly recommend to better understand the healthcare system in the U.S., let's talk about type 2 diabetes. I'm not really going to touch type 1. The pathophysiology is a little different. Trying to keep it simp here. Um, There is some overlap between the two. But type 2 diabetes, extremely common adult disease in the United States today. For the uninitiated, type 2 is at its basic level just an inability of the body to keep sugar or glucose levels within a normal range in the blood leading to spells of, we've all heard this word, hyperglycemia. High sugar. Emia just means in the blood. We all know that insulin somehow plays a role in this disease, right? Insulin just acts to lower blood sugar levels, I mean, among a shitload of other things. But the reason that type 2 diabetics get hyperglycemic has to do with not just insulin levels, but insulin sensitivity, which is pretty much just the body's ability to respond in the right way when exposed to insulin. So diabetes is really bad because it can lead to long-term organ dysfunction and multiple body systems, which obviously is costly, not only to the healthcare system as a whole, but like more importantly to the patient and their families, like of course financially, but also physically and psychologically. And those physiological problems, you know, things like uh, eye issues, blurry vision, cataracts, glaucoma, um, dysfunction of the retina, even blindness. Kidney problems. Diabetes is the most common cause of kidney failure in the United States. And what happens, basically, you have this inability to properly filter protein, salts, electrolytes, leading to high levels uh, in the blood of wastes you should be peeing out. And if your kidneys get bad enough, you can stop peeing altogether. It may get to the point of requiring dialysis, which is a pretty costly and honestly dehumanizing way of uh, just mechanically removing fluid Uh, and waste from your body when your kidneys aren't working anymore, like they should at least. And eventually, organ transplantation might be considered with its own potential risks, which we've already sort of talked about. And issues with the nervous system, blood vessels, probably heard of peripheral neuropathy, which may start as this like eh, numbness, tingling in your fingers and toes, but it can really progress to this profoundly limiting uh, mobility. So... Poor blood flow to your feet and legs can result in wounds that may get infected and potentially require an amputation or two or three. I've seen this happen multiple times where patients get amputation revisions. They start with the toe and they go to the ankle. They go below the knee, then above the knee. Um, It's really sad, honestly. And, of course, heart issues, which increase your risk of heart attack. So you can see why getting type 2 diabetes can be a debilitating physical illness. But it's important to understand how these physical changes almost always lead to unwanted alterations in your day-to-day life that can 
greatly affect your mental health. Beyond that, we've already heard in the news how horrifyingly expensive insulin has become in this country due to the pharmaceutical industry's ability to set insulin prices with basically no regulation. And if you haven't heard this, I don't know how you can't have heard this by now. Just do a quick Google search. But we can't forget all the other potential costs that go into chronic diabetes management, including things like anti-hyperglycemic medications, things that aren't just insulin, um, ACE inhibitors for kidney protection, regular foot care, maybe some diabetic shoes, medications to ease neuropathic pain like gabapentin, Lyrica, these kinds of things, regular eye exams, and uh, just like basic surveillance lab work like hemoglobin A1C monitoring. And there's a bunch of stuff. So, I mean, you might think, like, what causes type 2 diabetes? Basically... Basically, your body becomes resistant to insulin. Uh, so why does that happen? The reason's partly due to a couple of things. Partly due to genetics, meaning someone in your family fucked you over, right? Um, we call this uh, a non-modifiable risk factor. Basically, I mean, I'm sorry, bub, nothing to do about this one. You know, mom and dad fucked you over, top 10 anime betrayals, you hate to see it. But increasingly, over the last 50 or so years, these environmental factors, or, or what we call modifiable risk factors, are becoming more implicated in the increased incidence and prevalence of type 2. For simplicity, these modifiable risk factors include three things, inactivity, weight gain, and poor diet. And obviously, these are all related. And generally we begin diabetes treatment with what we call lifestyle modification, which is, you know, basically just changing your eating habits, um, eating healthier foods, less calories, portion control, and uh, exercise, of course. Simply a change in your modifiable risk factors. And if these don't work, generally start these anti-hyperglycemic medications. You know, you may have heard of like metformin or glipizide. These act to lower your blood sugar to acceptable levels. And obviously insulin for... There's a subset of patients who have insulin deficiency on top of insulin resistance. Um, I won't really get into that, but... The point is that on the surface, these lifestyle modifications can sound, you know, pretty reasonable. Change the behaviors causing the problems, and the issue will go away. Move more, eat better. But the reality is... You know, not everyone has the same level of access to those means which allow them to modify their lifestyle in the first place. The problem with this mode of care is that, you know, quote, lifestyle modification ignores those social and structural components of health that contribute to those outcomes. And in this process, individualizes struggle. I want to say this again, put a huge emphasis on this phrase, lifestyle modification alone individualizes struggle. And here's the secret, you know, psst, here's the secret. The individualization of struggle is the precise logic of neoliberal capitalism. W what do I mean by that? Let's take, for example, the behavioral changes linked with workplace wellness as constructed by our employers. Again, episodes two and three for more on this. Wellness, in the dominant cultural definition at least, is a form of lifestyle modification and a way to individualize struggle. Why? Wellness acts as a sterile substitute for realizing that your shitty working conditions are just the result of you being exploited by your employer, right? This idea that like you alone must make changes in your personal life, 
that'll make you less depressed, less alienated, especially at the place you spend most of your fucking time, work, it's pretty toxic. You get told to, you know, do this wellness, change your lifestyle, turn your life around, instead of looking at your also exhausted, also fed up coworkers and recognizing like, hey, we're all exploited here. I'm valid to think this way. You know, collectively organizing with them against a structurally dictatorial work environment that generally tells you things like how much you can get paid, how many hours you're going to work, how much vacation you're going to get, what kind of benefits you get, what kind of work you're doing, how they want you to do it, what you're even allowed to talk about at work, what you have to wear to work, all while under the microscope and with the knowledge that you can usually be fired at almost any time for any reason that they can make up on the spot. Obviously, there are some laws that prevent this, but it's more common than you think. Another example. When we're talking about, oof, oh lord, climate change, recycling, eating less meat, going vegan, buying local, not using disposable plastic shit and all that stuff. I mean, we all know that real communism is not using plastic straws, but you know, while good and necessary, it's important to develop an understanding that this is just another form of lifestyle modification and, again, a way to individualize struggle around a gigantic collective problem. Because, again, it substitutes for realizing that the vast majority of climate change does not come from individual decisions. It comes primarily from institutional powers in the form of multinational corporations. 71% of all global emissions come from 100 companies. You know, we've all heard these statistics. I don't know, maybe you haven't, which, yeah, shit, shit sucks, dude. Um, so the neoliberal argument is to, you know, quote, make better consumer choices, do your part. And everyone on Earth, you know, if we individually do this, we will avert global climate catastrophe. And all this is bullshit, of course, because individuals that are alienated from each other cannot make structural change, even if their goals are all the same. Developing an understanding of our real enemies and collective direct action is the only way to dismantle these oppressive institutions that are acidifying oceans, destroying farmland, contributing to antibiotic resistance, mass species extinction, and literally killing us all. Agribusiness, the meatpacking industry, the fossil fuel companies, these are our enemies. Not fucking feminism, not Islam, not immigrants, not some Jewish plot for global financial domination, okay? So wellness and climate change, these are just two among many more examples of, quote, lifestyle modification that are floated out to us daily by this capitalist propaganda. And if we're going to see through that propaganda, we have to develop an understanding of power and its ability to control discourse and therefore bend people who are powerless to its will. I want to do a full episode at some point on power, you know, at some point, because I, th I think if we want some kind of global social revolution that'll release us from these chains of capitalist realism, we need at least some knowledge of two topics that are, I think, purposefully absent or warped, at least, in our education system. And those are history and power. We closed out part one of this series by saying that healthcare outcomes have to do with the patient as a whole, right? Not just the medications we prescribe or the procedures we recommend when we see them in the healthcare setting, at the, in, the, in the clinic or in the hospital or whatever. There's a whole life out there that the patient's living. We see them less than 
0.1% of their entire lives. So we have to understand that their structural interactions with society and the economy play a colossal role in that 99.9% of the time we don't see them. So if we want to prevent people from developing type 2 diabetes or help patients reverse the effects of already existing type 2 diabetes, we have to go beyond only identifying and modifying their individual risk factors, mainly being poor diet and inactivity. We have to ask ourselves an important question here. Why? Why do these patients have poor diets? Why are they inactive? Why do patients' historical factors contribute to their outcomes? Why does a lack of power limit their ability to change? We also have to consider social and structural risk factors for disease in addition to individual risk factors. You know, if you'll let me put on my philosophy hat here uh, just for a second. If my, my, uh, my two non-biological dads, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, are right about, you know, this base superstructure theory that, in a nutshell, the dominant economic system contributes heavily to the phenotypic formation of our political institutions, our social norms, our cultural modes, and, you know, as a Marxist, I obviously think they are. This means we must also interrogate the capitalist economy and its institutional limbs. And this means we have to understand the social and structural determinants of health and work to abolish those negative externalities of our economic system that put some people at a higher risk for developing this disease in the first place. So you know what, y'all? Let's get into the god-danged meat and potatoes here. Let's talk about those individual risk factors and use this to discuss how these individual risk factors actually largely interact with the social and structural risk factors. So let's start with um, poor diet here. Obviously, widely discussed issue in the U.S. generally began around the time of the Green Revolution with propagation of the food industrial complex, which we discussed extensively in Episode 5, shout out 12 eights, um, or eight, uh, 812s maybe, I, I honestly don't even know. Consuming big portions of nutrient-poor foods, like this processed Walmart garbage, which is actually the name of my upcoming second mixtape, sugary soft drinks or fruit juices, and, quote, dead foods, seen largely in the fast food industry, lead you to being full, you know, but not nutritionally fulfilled. This is obvious. Just the sheer amount of carbs and fat in these foods and the lack of any nutritional value radically contributes to the increased rates of obesity, high blood pressure, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and so on in this country. And this type of food is also extremely addictive, which a lot of us probably understand by now. And this has you know, further implications in how we interact with our own diet in terms of cravings, reward pathways in the brain, and, and overall like how we manage our mood. When it comes to inactivity, the second modifiable risk factor. A good portion of inactivity since probably the mid-20th century up to now stems from how we've decided to use technology to organize our cities and working environments. Our sedentary lifestyles look something like this for a lot of people. We wake up after about six hours of sleep. We ride to work via car, or bus, train, rideshare. We sit at a desk for most of the day, and then we ride home. We sit down for dinner. 
then we, you know, we take care of those kind of what I call pressured productive obligations like family or kids or homework, whatever you have to do. And then just plop on the couch or recliner, you know, maybe a lazy boy, um, just complete exhaustion until you got to do it all again tomorrow. This doesn't really lend well to keeping our metabolism going by actually moving, walking places, using short-term carb and sugar stores for energy. This is what controls blood glucose, or at least, at least helps to. Some cities are just too big, or too spread out to be able to get around everywhere by just walking, especially cities like LA that have pretty abysmal public transportation systems. So this leads to, of course, traffic from hell. And the lack of safe or existing bike lanes, right, in a lot of U.S. cities, it's a shame. So inactivity is also important from the aspect of how mentally exhausting life under capitalism is for the working class especially, because a lot of times the last thing, like for example, like a working mother of three wants to do after a 12-hour shift is go work out at a gym, and that's if their neighborhood or town even has one, right? And mood disorders like depression, anxiety can really hinder your motivation to want to do much to better yourself, assuming you even have the energy or will. And there are some studies that, you know, it's hard to say on a population level, at least, if exercising really does help to manage mood disorders. You know, it's tempting, very tempting to victim blame people, you know, get up off your ass, fucking do something or whatever. But don't we all accept by now that diet and exercise is hard as fuck, even for rich people with every resource at their disposal? We all understand that these are obvious problems. But the trouble is that these individual modifiable risk factors have way more to do with the patient's social position, economic class, political autonomy, interaction with the dominant cultural mode, hell, even geographic location than they do with any of their individual consumer choices. So how is this true? Let's talk about poor diet again. These shit foods tend to be more readily available and cheaper than, say, fresh fruits and vegetables, lean meats, chicken, fish. I mean, you'll find Walmarts and Food Lions and Kroger's and Giant Eagles scattered across fucking rural desolation and suburban shopping centers, you know, filled to the fucking brim with all this cheap garbage that, you know, I just want to be clear that I I absolutely love. Just want to be clear there. But this is also reflected in the proliferation of fast food, not just for its affordability, but also in its function and time-saving compared to buying healthy groceries and cooking at home. Fast food I mean, these days, it's pretty much the cultural norm for a huge swath of the working class. Not always out of choice, but again, out of necessity and convenience. And again, you know, if we're going to talk about the logic of neoliberal capitalism, people who are able to will trade cost for convenience all the time. It's just a way of buying back free time, which is constantly being stripped away from us. This is what I meant earlier by, you know, mental exhaustion from life under capitalism. I mean, you ever sit on a text or a Slack message for just hours or days because you can't stand the obligation to be available to others at all times of the day? You ever just like stare at an email that's been lingering in your inbox for days or weeks and just can't muster up the energy to reply to it? Am I just talking about myself? Possibly. I don't think so. 
But these pressured productive obligations, again, such as work and school, raising children and all that, all these things follow us home and take up the vast majority of our day. And they're constantly in conflict with what I call essential social reproduction, which is pretty much just the daily renewal of our own lives by meeting our specific needs, whether that be through social interaction with family and friends, leisure, sleep, anything we need to continue living meaningfully and joyously. And aside from convenience, it's also important to understand a key social and structural determinant of health. The fact that cheaper, less healthy options overwhelmingly service economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. You won't find places like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or more expensive but healthier food options in these neighborhoods because these companies have no incentive to serve these populations if they can't afford to buy their shit, even if that means these people suffer nutritionally. That's why you see, you know, the, the Quick Mart, the corner store, gas stations, Dollar Generals, you see this shit more than like actual grocery stores or legitimate healthier restaurant options in these geographically isolated rural towns or economically stagnant urban neighborhoods. Capitalist social and economic relations will always have the final say in where capital and resources get concentrated, and therefore who gets access to what, because the free market and all its wisdom Free markets deem that those with the ability to pay will always get first dibs on scarce resources. Whether those resources are truly scarce or if that scarcity is artificial. We can talk about artificial scarcity and planned obsolescence maybe in another episode. And it hopefully goes without saying by now, but I'll just mention it anyways. The people who are more affected than not in these situations are black and brown and indigenous people of color who are in social positions in an economic class of structural disenfranchisement, marginalization, and exclusion from centers of power. They're more likely to be displaced to the more economically stagnant areas of the towns and cities they live in and suffer the most from geographic displacement from capital in the forms of gentrification. This places them in food deserts, areas of stagnant growth with limited resources, no work, and if history is a guide, spoiler alert, it is, then we also know that this displacement often leads to relocation to parts of town that are close to, you know, toxic dumping grounds, in proximity to chemical waste poisoned rivers, downstream from industrial centers that pollute the air they breathe. Gary, Indiana, ever heard of it? This further contributes to their decline in health, but, you know, it's a whole podcast episode worth of shit. In a small tangent, and then we'll return. Why do you think wealthy people are statistically more able to manage chronic disease in general, like type 2 diabetes, and live longer with this and you know all these other long-term illnesses than poor people? I mean, don't look at me. The data supports this phenomenon. There was a study a couple years ago co-authored by uh, two MIT researchers that showed in the U.S., the richest 1% of men live 14.6 years longer on average than the poorest 1% of men. For women, that difference was 10.1 years. I mean, that's just that's unconscionable, that difference. I mean, are we really going to believe in some kind of biological determinism? Like, 
are rich white people inherently smarter or genetically more superior? Are they better at cultural adaptation and just work harder? Does God just favor them more? Or is this disparity and longevity explained by the oppressive systems of neoliberal capitalism that stomp all over those that have been economically and socially disadvantaged since even the times of fucking 16th century feudalism? Could it have something to do with current economic practices favoring those with historical access to generational wealth? And most notably here, again, cishet white men? This is why understanding institutions of power and exploitation, especially through the lens of historical development, allows us to see through propaganda. And now we'll come to inactivity here. Many rural towns have no sidewalks or means to even get around besides cars. No public transport, not even buses, no Uber or Lyft. And, you know, even if you have ride-sharing in your city, it's pretty expensive to use uh, for a lot of people. If you're making $12 an hour at a job and it costs you $12 to get to work via Lyft, you're already losing two hours of wages every single day just getting to work and back. And from experience growing up in southern West Virginia, it's pretty hard to get around meaningfully without a car. Suburbia is barely any better with potentially miles between where you are now and where you need to get, the organization of suburban cities precludes people from walking to get to point A to point B a lot of the time, even if there are sidewalks. And not only that, the working class in urban centers have largely been priced out of the areas they'd like to live that are closer to where they work, and this disallows them from walking to work, forcing them to rely on cars, ride-sharing, public transit, if their cities even have it, like I was saying. And this only adds to already high costs of living in a big city. So why don't we just change this, right? (sighs) Having limited political autonomy means that we don't have the ability to make meaningful changes in our local communities that include building infrastructure to support walking, building public gyms or community centers that people can use for free for talking about inactivity. When private entities like you know, Planet Fitness open up shop in a city, it's because they think they can turn a profit from whoever lives in that city and are willing and able to pay for a gym membership. In a lot of rural areas, without the infrastructure or population density or economic movement, these, com- uh, these companies have no incentive to move in if nobody can get to the fucking building, especially if there's no public transit, right? Or if nobody can afford to pay the expensive monthly membership fee. This is just one example of how politics and society play a large role in how an individual is able to control their own destiny. And, you know, what are other barriers to activity? I mean, think about this. What if you have joint pain that precludes you from exercising and you can't afford to go to the doctor? What if you need help with mental health issues or addiction before you can commit to working on your physical health? What if you're too overwhelmed trying to meet your other basic needs like stable housing or affording college? All right, so if people can't go to the gym, there's still other ways to exercise. Stop making excuses for people. They can just walk or run around in their neighborhood. But what if it's not safe? Women, sexual, and gender minorities face this problem, harassment, and violence every single day. Okay, fine. Buy a treadmill or a Bowflex for your house. 
With what cash? Even local YMCAs have a membership fee and certain hours of operation that might not work for you. I guess you can do push-ups and pull-ups and shit like that at home, but for some people, they don't even have the exercise capacity for that. We have to give people spaces for activity in whatever capacity they're able to do. And this is not to say that you know, people don't make it work despite their economic conditions or circumstances. A lot of people do. But if we're looking at society as a whole, looking at rates of obesity and how they correlate with the poorest states in the country, I'm, you know, I'm looking at you, West Virginia, Alabama, Kentucky, the list goes on. We can't ignore these social and structural determinants of health outcomes. And I'll just mention you know, one thing related to childcare. The dominant cultural mode of social life under capitalism is the nuclear family, which, historically speaking at least, has not always been the case. For significant portions of the population, they don't have the time, let alone the energy, to exercise after work when they have kids at home who need cared for, for example. Or maybe they work two jobs or three jobs. This has become even more acute for cis women who, under capitalism, were for a long time historically trapped in service to unpaid, pressured productive obligations like domestic labor in the form of housework, raising children, all while relying on men for access to wealth and therefore power. But increasingly since World War II, at least, women are moving into the non-domestic workforce, which originally was due to, you know, employers seeking cheaper labor and is the historical and still present cause of the gender wealth gap. What's, like, what's fucked about this is that although it's obviously good that women have gained the ability to self-determine on some level by not having to rely on a man for a living wage, from a cultural perspective, they're still expected to forego these essential social reproductive tasks and continue on in the background with this pervasive and inappropriately gendered housework, domestic responsibilities. So in a cultural mode that teaches us an exclusionary individualist politics, which is realized in this reactionary logic of God, family, country, that parents are the only ones to raise children rather than historical modes, child-rearing, meaning the broader collective community, there are oftentimes much less room for parents to undergo essential social reproduction in the form of health maintenance, again, leisure, sleep, social interaction, and all this stuff. Because something less necessary, quote-unquote, like exercise, will always compete for time that has to be allotted for pressured productive obligations. And this, again, is another way that capitalism individualizes struggle. We have no affordable childcare program in this country to speak of. Spreading this difficult work out to more people will prevent your time from constantly being stolen from you and your attention perpetually being sought after to consume and produce. And this will allow individuals to more meaningfully and autonomously interact with their own hopes and dreams. So I know... Seemed, that seemed a little tangential, and I'm, I'm diagnosing a lot of problems here. But to sum all, this, sum all this up, when we're talking about healthcare, we need to understand that there's so many more things that contribute to positive or negative healthcare outcomes than just the form of healthcare delivery, meaning you know private hospitals and clinics versus nationalized medicine, and finance, healthcare finance, which, you know, 
private insurance, which is what we have, versus something like single payer. And the ability to safely and affordably access food, housing, a good education, a living wage, a safe environment, reliable transportation, and childcare, these all interact with healthcare and intersectionally, we love that word, intersectionally inform the health of our communities at large. And all these things together, including healthcare, inform the health of our nation by using markers that include, again, infant and maternal mortality, homelessness, literacy rates, upward social mobility, poverty rates, inequality, and so on. And to sum all that up, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but we live in a society. So the questions we need to ask are not, you know, why is my patient not taking their meds as I prescribed? Or why won't my patient lose weight or quit smoking after hours of counseling them? Or why won't my patient undergo physical therapy that I prescribed? Or why does my patient continuously miss appointments? Or even why do people continue to use the emergency department for primary care rather than seeing a primary care provider? The questions we do need to ask are things like, you know, does my patient have a living wage? Or overall financial means or stability to afford healthier food? Does my patient have access to reliable transportation in order to make it to work or school or doctor's appointments? Do my patient's working conditions allow them to take time off for doctor's appointments or you know, rehab after surgery? Can my patient find a job that gives them not only this flexibility, but the ability to afford the medications or procedures they need? Is my patient able to access their health insurance or is their copay or deductible expensive to the point that they put off seeing a doctor at all? Can my patient even afford health insurance in the first place in order to access primary care? Or are they forced to repeatedly utilize other healthcare settings such as the emergency department or things like urgent care for their healthcare needs on a needed basis? Does my patient have safe housing where they feel comfortable carrying out the tasks needed for essential social reproduction? Do they have their childcare needs met in order to take care of themselves and the rest of their busy lives? Does my patient have access to the educational resources needed to solidify their understanding of their disease process, to improve their odds of managing it? All these questions, and there are zillions more. You know, society has to radically change for true patient care and autonomy to be actualized. And that radical change can be summed up pretty simply. We have to meet people's needs. So how would I propose, like practically, how would I propose doing something like that? Well, when it comes to things like food, what I've heard, you know, something I thought was pretty interesting was the government or the state in some way mandates that every restaurant provide one free option where anybody can go in and get some kind of dish or option that's totally free. In addition to other things like uh, food vouchers every month, um, there are some countries that do this. They send out a card to all their citizens um, where some kind of basic minimum is allowed to them to go to grocery stores Uh, in order to get groceries for them and their family, just the bare minimum. When it comes to things like housing, I mean, really, 
introducing a robust public housing project that seriously works to house people without homes. In addition to that, I mean, there's a lot of things besides public housing or, you know, mixed income housing. You have to do things like community land trusts. You have to do things like rent control, um, democratic neighborhood planning. There's a lot of things we can do to combat this and combat gentrification. And I think the best thing we can do on top of all that is to remove the entire market for housing in general, because that is the crux of what introduces things like gentrification and redlining and things like that. When it comes to education, I think this one's pretty simple. I mean, everybody's debt needs to be erased. Public education should be free. In fact, there are, there are countries in Europe where they pay students stipends to go to school. They are invested in their future. They want their children who will be future productive members of society to succeed. I mean, doesn't that just make more sense? When it comes to child care, like I said, the United States does not is one of the only countries, I think maybe the only country that does not extend any kind of child care program from zero to age five. I mean, think of how that could free people so much to pursue their own social reproduction, their interests. People are chained to, I mean, I don't want to talk about children as, as chains, but in some ways you have to put off certain wants and needs in your own life to fulfill that of your of your children, which is a sacrifice most people are willing to make, and that's great, but we have to give people the opportunity to still be able to pursue their life goals, their dreams, all that. And transportation, oh God, I mean, the United States' obsession with private transit, you know, cars, it, it's, it's a very American conception. Like, very few countries are this fixated on, you know, personal transport. I was, when I was in Spain a couple of months ago, just the fact that they had a pretty decent train system makes your life so much easier to get from uh, city to city. Public transportation, buses, and local subways or just metros, they're all free. People can use them, or they're extremely cheap. These things will not only reduce our carbon footprint, but it'll make everybody's life easier. And if we're going to build a society that's you know, spread out, sprawling, you have to give people the opportunity to move around in space without limit because charging people to move around is, to me, that's pretty barbaric, especially in the context of work. You know, forcing people to pay money to go to work comes out of their paycheck. I mean, these are things we have to think about. And of course, when it comes to healthcare, of course, like I was saying in the prior episode in part one, of course we have to do single payer. Of course we have to do that. Of course we have to recognize our enemy and abolish the pharmaceutical industry and the medical device companies. Of course we have to train more doctors, more nurses, more pharmacists, more and more and more. 
we may even have to get to a situation where doctors, nurses, they're all participating in local communities rather than being all consolidated within very large hospital systems. I think there are certain merits to big university and academic centers conducting research and participating in some of the more advanced and difficult, for example, surgical procedures, organ transplantations. I I think there's room for that. But I think that consolidation is also causing a lot of problems to local and rural communities that need to be addressed. These are just some things that you know cross my mind when it comes to actually making material change in people's lives. Definitely not a comprehensive list. But the real sort of base of all of these changes comes from decommodifying these needs, right? Removing a profit incentive, removing these things from the market. I mean, the reason private industry is so invested in these things is because I mean, think about it. These needs will always be there. When it comes to the private sector, a lot of a lot of things within marketing and advertising, we're having things that we quote unquote want presented to us. Right? These are things we may want, may be cool, may make our life better, but these things are transient. They come and go, depending on whatever historical stage we're at whatever level of technology we've achieved, but needs, again, healthcare, food, housing, education, childcare, these are always going to be there. People will always require these things, and therefore people will always want to turn a profit on these things because these are stable ways of exploiting people. In other words, the demand creates itself. I guess that's all I really have to say about that. Sorry, these episodes are they're kind of boring. I know. Um, I, I wanted to spice it up, tell a couple jokes, be a little goof. Um, but these are serious topics at the same time. These are things we need to take seriously in our everyday life and understand how we can struggle for a better society, for a totally different organization of social relations, ways that we take care of ourselves and each other. I mean, we got to get out of hell world, man. This shit fucking sucks. So, thanks for tuning in. This has been another episode of Appalachia Wellness Center. I guess this is the part where I would say sign up for the Patreon. Don't have one, though. So, you know, all I can really ask, I suppose, of my, you know, five to ten listeners out there, my uh, my loyal guard dogs, my, my loyal vanguard of the, the inevitable social revolution, just keep vibing with me. You know, vibes are vibes, and we'll vibe together. And as long as we vibe together and keep vibing, keep the vibes going, I have no doubt we'll get free.